Amenville Church. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So you might be brand new to Easter worship services. I want to welcome you to Village Church. There is a a tradition that actually spans quite a few years and uh, all over the world, pastors get up in front of the church and they say three words. They say, he is risen. Now we're going to practice with our worship team here. And and when the pastor says that, he is risen, they respond and say, he is risen. Now you're going to try, but here's the goal. You're not robots. Amen. And so like, imagine, I don't know, hypothetically, that God became man, died for your sins, paid the price for your sins so that you would never, ever have to go to, to, to hell. You'd receive the Holy Spirit, the confident assurance of forgiveness in eternity with him, and you'd be saved from yourself. I mean, I don't know, something like that. Imagine that that's the way you might respond. So the pastor says, he is risen. And you say, he is risen. I want to read a couple scriptures. At the end, I'm going to say those words, and then I want to ask you to respond. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He is risen. risen Revelation chapter 1, John gets a, a vision of the glorified Jesus. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Village Church, he is risen. risen Amen, let's pray together. Uh, Father, today we declare that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Sin has been vanquished. Satan has been humiliated. Death has been overcome. And we have been set free from the grips of hell. On this day, two millennia ago, as your genius plan of salvation unfolded, angels rejoiced, dead saints stood in awe, and Jesus' followers just marveled. And go figure, Jesus, you did exactly what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. So Jesus, you were the first to raise with a glorified body, but Easter and your word declare to us that you will not be the last. So we worship today anticipating our own future resurrection. And just as our souls have been raised to new life through faith in you, we await our own bodily resurrection along with all of creation. 
where sin will have lost its power and death will be a distant memory of times gone by. As we open your word, we choose to open our hearts to your encouragement, to your truth, and to your will. And if for some reason our hearts are resistant to you this morning, we invite you to overcome so that we might experience that which is truly life through faith in Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen, Ville Church? Amen. You may be seated. Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the great joy to open up God's word with you. Um, I probably, by the end of our third service, will lose my voice, but it will not be from preaching. It's going to be from just belting out and and singing. And I actually had to tell myself, rein it in. We got three services to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, if you're new with us, so happy you are here. Easter's a great day because some of you, you got guilted here and you're stuck. And family was like, you're coming with me. It's my one ask of the entire year. And uh, we have our kids with us in the service this morning. So, so excited just to open God's word, encourage you and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. If you were here with us on Good Friday, um, I asked everybody a question, and I wanted you to take inventory of how you would personally answer the question. Here it is. Which best describes what you believe about Jesus? And then we gave a series of answers, and what I asked you to do was to... um, Figure out which word or phrase furthest to the right you are able to confidently and personally affirm. And so let's start all the way at the, at the left. And, and the first phrase is non-existent. There are a handful of people who believe that Jesus never existed. He's just mythology, etc. They are the far, far minority, but there are a few of them out there. Next, we have that Jesus is a con man. Um, He's a shyster. He basically lied, took advantage of people to extort them, probably for power and money. Uh, As we go further left, we have that Jesus was self-deluded. Jesus, being just a normal man, walked around with visions of grandeur, thinking he was God, when in fact, maybe he was Looney Tunes um, a little bit. As we go further left, uh, or right, we get... um, I think to the place where the vast majority of Americans probably lie. They would say, good, but misunderstood. Like, he's a good teacher, he's a moral teacher, probably pay attention to the things that Jesus says, but if you were to actually go back in time and have a conversation with him, uh, he would not tell you that he's the Messiah or the prophet or even God himself, but he would say, yeah, people kind of just assigned all these titles to me, and they kind of made a bigger deal of me than, than I'm comfortable with. There are a handful of people who believe that about about Jesus. Another one that's really common is that Jesus was a messenger of God. Uh, That Jesus was definitely from God. Jesus definitely had the divine stamp of approval on him. He definitely did things in the power of God. Uh, but, But maybe you wouldn't be comfortable with the next one, which is kind of the ultimate statement about Jesus, which is that Jesus is God incarnate. Now, as we get into the rest of this message, I want you to just take stock. Where are you personally at today? Which one of these can you confidently affirm that is closest to to the right? Now, if, if we were able to have a conversation with Jesus personally, here's what we know. Absolutely, he would affirm that he believed he was God in the flesh. Jesus is not having an identity crisis. But, but I think of all the questions that I ask on a Sunday morning, and I ask you guys quite a few questions, and I ask you to take inventory and reflect on your own souls and minds quite a bit, I, I actually think this might be the most important. 
Because how you answer this singular question very well will determine your destiny. And I, and I know I can speak in behalf of, I think almost everybody in this room, there's not a single one of you that if Jesus is real and if there is an eternal God, nobody in this room wants to be separated from God in hell for all of eternity. Which is why this question becomes absolutely paramount for every person in the room to deal with. Now, I want, to, I want you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 5 on Good Friday. We're going to start um, with the verse we read then. It's John chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what it says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And the Jews are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, probably the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it says this, here's why they, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's what we know. Jesus believed he was God. But here's what we also know. This singular proclamation that Jesus would make infuriated the religious leaders of his day. This singular claim would be their primary motivation to coordinate his murder. This singular one. There was nothing that Jesus said that was more inciting and infuriating to these religious leaders than this. Let me ask you a question. If there was, I don't know, a government agency that was coordinating your murder and execution, would you pursue them to have conversations with them? Anybody? I'm guessing you, you probably wouldn't. One of the things I love about Jesus is he kind of does the opposite of what I would do in most circumstances. And uh, he's just constantly surprising. And Jesus is like, in his infinite wisdom, is like, I'm gonna have a talk with him. And so in verse 19 of John 5, what we find is Jesus actually engages the very people who are conspiring to murder him. And what's so delightful about this is that he just pokes. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So not, not only has Jesus claimed deity to these religious leaders, but I want you to catch this. He's looking at the men who claim to know the most about God, be the closest to God in relationship and proximity. And here's what he's claiming to them. I have an intimacy and a relationship with the Father that you don't have. In fact, I want you to just kind of break down the implications of some of the things he's saying. According to Jesus, he can see the Father. According to Jesus, he can Talk to the Father. It gets weirder. According to Jesus, he can hear the Father. And not just generically. Like on a daily basis, Jesus and the Father have some sort of communication with each other that is as understandable, tangible, and clear as you and I talking. And this drives the religious leaders insane. And every single sentence that comes out of Jesus' mouth, they are going to get more and more furious. Let's just talk candidly about the question I asked at the beginning. 
In light of verses 19 and 20, um, what can you confidently affirm about Jesus? I want to take a handful of these off the table uh, because at the end of the day, in light of verse 19 and 20, I think all that we're left with as the possibility is con man, self-deluded, or God incarnate. Let, let me explain this. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great paradigm of understanding Jesus. Many of you are familiar with it. It's called the liar, the Lord, the lunatic paradigm. But I want to read to you from Mere Christianity, a book that he wrote, where he actually talks about this because his insights are incredible. Here's what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. And here's what he does not want you to say anymore. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead because he claimed to be God and they thought he was crazy. And when somebody's crazy, you don't know what they're going to do next. And this crazy man was starting to get a following. And people were watching him and following. And they were starting to agree with him. We think he might not just be the prophet or the Messiah. We actually think he might be God. And this threatened their power. By the way, when, I don't know, government throughout ages in history sees that the people have a view that's different than them and they're gaining more power, what often do governments throughout history do to those people? censor them. And this is what they're going to do to Jesus. So already Jesus is just poking, but he's not done. He's going to amp this up. In verse 20, he amps up the tension and he says, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Of all the miracles he's already done, from the wedding at Cana, turning a bunch of water into wine, to healing people, to um, people who are sick for decades and decades, illnesses, casting out demons. I mean, you name it, right? People who watched Jesus were in awe, and they knew minimally he was from God, possibly he was actually God. And Jesus looks at these religious leaders and says, "You've you've been watching, you've been listening, you've been seeing what I've been doing, and I want you to catch really clearly what I'm saying. You have not even begun to see the extent of my power. This, this, is, the, this is like the pre-show. When you see the extent of what I am capable of, your jaw will drop. And here's what he says, you will marvel. Whether you believe me or not, your mind will be blown when you see the power of God resident in me. Now, again, the more Jesus talks, what emotion do you surmise these religious leaders are experiencing? I'm going to go with rage. Verse 21, he goes on, and, and I want you to remember as, as he says this, he knows they think he's crazy, okay? And he also knows they're trying to kill him. So he's just like, hey, we're already here, so let's just go, let's just go for it. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is going to identify really two incredible things that only God should be able to do And he's going to describe two things that are God's responsibility. And the father is going to hand full responsibility of these two things to Jesus himself. 
Here's the first one. Who is able and responsible to raise people from the dead? The Jews would have said, God, God the Father, absolutely. When people get raised from the dead, it's God who does it. Here's what he says in verse 21. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Let me, let me translate verse 21 for you. All right, hey, Jewish leaders, um, you know the Father, the one that I chat with like on a daily basis that you don't, but I do, and that I have the end that you don't. You know that guy? He has handed over to me all of the power, authority, and responsibility to be the one that raises people from the dead. And now, their rage gets deeper and more furious. All right, if somebody had the power and authority to raise someone from the dead, would you not take them a bit more seriously? Like, if he's just a crazy person making these claims... I'd be like, all right, I want to listen to you. So guess what happens? Seven chapters later, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And I want you to listen to what these evil Pharisees do in response. This is John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. All right, let's be straight for a moment, okay? If, if your buddy died, was in the ground, like, absolutely confirmed dead, and then you heard that some guy raised him from the dead, would you not go see this person? Absolutely. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I mean, these are just terrible, evil men. And Jesus is having a conversation with them, and he's like, hey, by the way, um, the things you saw me do before, I'm gonna do far better. And even when he does them, the people start following him and believing in him and all they are is enraged even more to the point where they don't want to just kill Jesus. They want to kill all evidence of his deity. Let's go back to John chapter five and verse 22. First, Jesus claims that the father is granting him the power and authority to raise people from the dead. But then he takes this a step further and he says that the father is going to grant him authority to judge at the end of everyone's life, each person and determine whether or not they go to hell to heaven. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, which just on the surface is kind of a shocking statement because the father is going to judge. Here's what he says, but has given all judgment to the son. And verse 23 tells us what the son expects at judgment, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. In the next verse, Jesus, he's so kind. He is going to lay out the rules of judgment. So now if you're all in this room and you want to know, on the day of judgment, when I stand before Jesus Christ, what is going to be the difference between the person he brings into eternal life in heaven and those who go to hell? If you want to know the difference, he's about to tell us. Ready? Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you had the plan of salvation and you were faced with your future murderers, who are going to torment you and shame you and then also kill your friends, would you tell them how to be forgiven? 
Even the fact that you hesitated makes me grateful that you're not Jesus. And I think in one of the most remarkably gracious and kind moments in all of the Gospels, Jesus sits with his future murderers and he plants the seed of the gospel in their hearts and mind. Now, they're going to be enraged by this, but this seed might bear fruit far after his death and resurrection. And in kindness, he tells them, in the future, when you want to really be reconciled to God, here's how you do it. How kind. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not say, good people go to heaven. He does not say, your good works need outweigh your bad works. He does not say, you're a Jew, you inherited your faith, you're good, your grandma prayed for you. None of that. In fact, he doesn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Here's what he says. Every person must personally believe in Jesus Christ. I want to give you, I think, one of the greatest illustrations of this in the Bible. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Next to him is a thief. This thief, uh, we'll just say presumably, was not a great guy. He did things that led him to the point where he was being murdered for his sins. This was a, a person who probably his entire life didn't, like, I don't know, like, live a holy life. We're just going to assume that. And that's what the text really wants you to take away. We have a pretty terrible human being who has done nothing in his entire life. And I want to read you what one, one author wrote about him. How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no mission trip, no volunteerism, and no church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. And among other things, he was a thief. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus. How? Simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. This thief was just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. We come back to these religious leaders who are plotting the murder of the Son of God. And, and here's what we see. We see a thief who has done nothing whatsoever to deserve eternal life and yet was given it because he believed in Jesus. And then we hear about these Jews, these religious leaders. And I want you to catch this. If you were so evil to coordinate and plot and then fulfill the murder of God himself, did you know that the blood of Christ is potent enough to forgive you of your sin? Amen. And there are some of you in this room who say, you don't know what I've done. And I would tell you, if he can forgive the people who murdered God, absolutely, the blood of Christ has the power to cover and forgive your sins. And so if you have come into this room and you're like, I'm a good person, you're relying on all of these notions of spirituality to get you into heaven, throw them in the trash, turn on the garbage disposal because they are useless. In fact, Jesus himself, if he were right here, he would look at you and say, believe in me for the forgiveness of your sins. I am God, I died on the cross for your sins and I was raised from the, from the dead. Will you trust in me and believe in me as your God? I am so thankful. I am so unbelievably thankful that I do not have to live wondering if I'm good enough to go to heaven. The Bible already tells me I'm not. 
And when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I'm not gonna look at him and say, well, did you see what I did? Did you see how many sermons I preached? Being a pastor has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not I actually go to heaven one day or am forgiven. The only thing that matters is that I've thrown myself upon Jesus and trusted in his death and resurrection for my sins and my place. And this is the story of every single person who gets into heaven. It will always be the same. I am a sinner. I believed in Jesus Christ as my God, that he died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. Nobody will have a different story in heaven. Nobody. The thief on the cross got in. The people who murdered Jesus had the ability to get in, and every single person in this room, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, you actually have the ability to get in by simply believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. There are going to be some of you, you're going to walk away from here today, and you're going to think that pastor, he's just like every other pastor, that's fine. And years down the road, months or days, I don't know, you're going to come to this point where you actually realize Jesus is who he says he is, and I hope it's before the day of judgment. And you're going to realize this, and I want you to come back to this moment, and whatever you have done before this day or before the day you trust in Christ, I just want you to remember this, the power of the blood of Christ. It has the potency to forgive you of your sins once and for all. And so when you are personally ready to trust in Jesus, throw yourself on him, and he will save anyone who asks So just to make sure that these evil murderers get the point and just maybe poke a little bit more, uh, here's how Jesus goes on. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and I want to be crystal clear in case that wasn't earlier, in the book of John, doing good is always believing And later in the book of John, they say to him, what good deeds do we need to do to be saved? And he says, here's the good deed you need to do, believe. John is crystal clear. Don't take your theology and put it on this. This is what Jesus means. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil, that is unbelief, to the resurrection of judgment. So the end of uh, all of our messages, we have a section that's just so what? Helps us take away something and make it more personal. One so what for you? And it's this, believe in the resurrected Jesus and receive eternal life. All right, so if you're here and you are a Christian, um, you've got a totally different set of so what's. And first is be here, celebrate, worship, pray, take the word of God seriously, eat with your family, teach your children and grandchildren about the resurrection of Jesus, that God has loved them, died for them, and the Father validated who he was by the resurrection. I mean, you're doing all the so what's on Easter you're supposed to do. We're gonna sing in a little bit, sing your heart out, and honor Jesus Christ as your God and Lord. But if you are here and you have never, ever personally asked God to be your savior, if you have never apologized to God for your sin, if you have never made this personal, I just have awesome news for you. You can do it anytime, anywhere, and I wanna give you that opportunity to do this. We're gonna have a a time of just quiet reflection. And I want to um, share with you just a couple simple things that you can pray. If today you wanna be reconciled to God and have your sins forgiven, 
I'm gonna share with you an opportunity, a prayer that you can pray. And so what we're gonna do first is, this is the first thing I'm gonna put on the screen, is you have to apologize to God. So if you have broken a relationship because of something you have done, don't you feel like owning that is a pretty good place to start? And it's the same with God. In order to be saved, you have to believe that you're a sinner and that you've sinned against a holy God. And so we're gonna have an opportunity in a moment for you to identify just between you and the Lord areas where you know you have sinned against others and God and scriptures teach that to sin against another person is to sin against God because they're his children. Next, we're gonna move on and we're gonna give you an opportunity to ask God to forgive and to save you from your sin. You don't have to worry about the perfect words. What God wants is a sincere heart. So it's one thing to own your sin, but it's another thing to ask God to forgive you. You know when somebody hurts you and they go, oh, sorry, and that's like the cheat way out? Asking for forgiveness is actually an exchange. And I want to encourage you, ask God to personally forgive you for the things that you have done, for the sin that you've done against him and others. Uh, Lastly, we're going to have a time where uh, where I want you to confess to God that Jesus is your God and that you believe he died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Forgiveness will not be a given to anyone in scripture unless they affirm these things. And so if you believe that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, take that moment to tell him that. Tell him you believe in him. And God's promise is that for anyone, anywhere, no matter how evil you have been, if you ask his forgiveness and you profess him and believe in him as your God and your savior raised from the dead, he will today, once and for all and forevermore, wash your sins away by the powerful blood of Jesus. And so let's have a time of silence. I want to ask you just to bow your heads if you're comfortable, pray in your heart. And here's the first opportunity for you. Number one, let's start off. And I want to just ask you to apologize to God and identify areas where you know you have sinned against him and others.